Welcome to the Property Developers and Investors podcast, where we explore the detail of what it really takes to achieve great success in the business of property developments and investments. Now let's get into this week's episode. And a very warm welcome to the planning podcast. And I have with me today here, Mr. David Kemp, who's my planning podcast partner today. How are you doing, David? Morning, Nigel. Morning, everyone. Excellent. Excellent. You keeping well? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Excellent. Right. So we're on episode three, David. My goodness me. And we're galloping through. We've got five episodes to go through. This is number three. So hopefully all the listeners are enjoying the the various subject matters all around planning, which we all love, um, because we know it could add so much value, David, don't we, to the, this yeah, project? Absolutely. Really, yeah, absolutely. Really yeah, yeah. So episode three, we're going to talk about why do I need planning permission? Why do I need planning permission? And you could kind of answer that in two ways. I think you could answer it in 30 seconds, or you could you could kind of just break it down into a few parts of subject. And I think we're going to do that, aren't we? And just explore mm. avenues. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Particular question. So I think first of all, just before we um we get off, I think let's, you know, let let's talk about maybe the legal position, you know, around why do I need plan permission? Why can't I just go off and do exactly what I want? Yeah. But what is the legal position, David? Well, if you go ahead and you do uh works of development to um to land or to buildings and you haven't got planning permission, then the council can take enforcement action against you, uh, which means that, you know, you spent, then there are commercial implications of spending all that money and wasting all that time doing all those works that may have to then be unpicked all over again. Um, Although that's not to say that the council would not in the long term or medium term grant you that. Um, But, um, you know, basically the council could take action against you and you know, that in itself will then have financial consequences. Um, and of course, there are different levels of the the seriousness of those legal consequences, uh, all the way up to, say, for instance, listed building, um, uh, works on listed buildings. And so, for instance, if you do works to a non-listed building without planning permission, it's actually not unlawful. Um, because you could get away with it, and after four years or ten years, whatever those works of development are, then it becomes potentially lawful. But with listed buildings, there is no immunity period. And actually, it's a criminal offence to do any work on a listed building without proper authority. So, you know, that, that's, those are, that's, that's probably the, the key aspects to it in legal terms. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely the wrist-slapping element. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's all it's eyes wide eyes wide open. Having you know the knowledge that you gain from you know various platforms, including hopefully this podcast, you know to just help people and keep them safe going yeah. forward. But maybe we just talk about you know planning posi- uh, permission per se. Mm. You know, what what is the primary purpose of it? The primary purpose of planning permission is trying to regulate the use and development of land. And when we talk about development, it splits down into what we call operational development on the one hand and material changes of use on the other. So operational development, let's look at that left branch first or right branch, depending upon what part of the screen, which angle of the screen you're looking at. Um, Operational development is either building, mining, engineering, or other works. So it could be anything sort of from um, shifting large mounds of earth and excavation works, uh, such as basement works, um, 
It can be um, normal building work, such as erecting a building. It can be any engineering work, such as you know, we're involved in, a, in infrastructure projects at the moment. The laying of um, district heat network pipe around the whole of the London borough of Enfield, that's an engineering work. So you wouldn't see it above the ground, um, but effectively its works require planning permission. Then you have, on the other side, you have material changes of use. So not all changes of use are material. And what do we define as what is material and what is not? So first of all, if you're changing from one use to another, that's possibly possibly development. You then have to ask yourself, is that a material change of use? And that's when you go to the use classes order, which defines what the use categories are. And so if you change from one use to another within the same use category, then you are not undertaking a material change of use. But if you change from a use in one use category to another use category, forgive the sirens, they're not after, they're not after me, um, to another use category, then that is a material change of use. So, for example, there are three main categories now. There's use class E, use class F, um, and then there's everything else that tends to be in sui generis. So let's take E and F. F tends to be sort of cultural stuff, sort of public halls, exhibition centres, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's education and learning stuff as well. Um, and also um, there are sort of, there's also... Um, C categories as well, which is residential. So you've got residential institutions. So resident, if you change from, let's say, a house, let's take a house which is a single dwelling house in C3, and you want to change that to an office or vice versa. That is a material change of use because an office is in use class E. You're changing to residential, which is use class C3. That's a material change of use. But if you want to change from an office to retail or vice versa, offices are in use class E, retail is in use class E, it's within the same use class. It's not material. Mm, absolutely. Is, so that, very, is that clear? Yeah. Very, very much so. So essentially it's the, the alphabet scenario and how it sits yeah. horizontally in that alphabet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's in the same, I mean, it's. I suppose it's still, permission is still required, but... You you could argue it's probably easier if it if it's all all in one line. That's right. Yeah, and when when we're talking about development and we're talking about changes of use, it's really important to to be to follow a a rational sequence of of thinking to jump through the hoops. When you when mistakes are made, when you miss things in planning, it's probably because you rushed to the answer. You need to go through each of the steps, um, and if you don't go each of the, through each of the steps in terms of is it development, is it permitted development? If it's not permitted development, it requires planning permission. If it requires planning permission, what's the principle of change of use? Is that supported? Then we get onto issues of amenity. Then we get onto issue of highways. Then we get into issues of environment, and you split it down like that. You go one step to another. You jump too much, then you'll miss things. And if we miss things, we either miss things which will cost the scheme money later on, or we might miss opportunities. Because we might look at something and think, okay, we need planning permission for this. And how many times have we seen it when you've looked on a portal 
at a, for instance, you're looking at a development site and you go on the portal at the agent's website and you see this is what they've done. This is what they've submitted an application, a planning application. But hold on a second. There's permitted development rights for this. Why have they done that? And sometimes they've done it simply because they weren't aware that there are permitted development rights. So that sequence, that rational sequence is really important because sometimes you just make your life a lot easier. Absolutely. And I see so many times that, you know, planning applications are rejected. And in my yeah. humble opinion, you know, certainly not being an expert in the matter, but in my humble opinion, they've just gone too big and too fast, too quick. Yes. Yeah. And it being a step-by-step, slowly, slowly catch a monkey. Yeah, so salami slicing sometimes. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. You see it and, you know, there, there is, um, you know, sadly, there is a bit of a negative impact as well on the development because it becomes almost like a scar, doesn't it, on the on the record of that uh, development. That's right, yeah. So it's, it, I think it's really important to get that strategy right, right at the outset, and and then just deploy the strategy. Lots of open dialogue. Yeah, there's, there's, there's two main issues here. First of all, getting... Building uh, there's there's a whole idea about building up a relationship with officers, um, and that part of that is um, building up a sense of momentum around the project. And so you start with the principles and you get them into a habit. The ideal thing is to try to get them into a habit of saying yes to the project. So you start with the really easy stuff. Hopefully, the big ticket items. I'll come on to that in a second. But then you kind of hopefully build up that momentum of them saying, yes, okay, that sounds reasonable. So you don't push it too much. Um, And then you come back and then you start asking for a little bit more and tweak here and tweak there. Whereas if you went in with that in the first place, they might stand back and be concerned that it's always probably pushing it too much. But if you build up to it, you've got them into the habit of saying, yes, yes, yes. The other thing is that you often refer to as well as the value staircase. And we touched on it in the last podcast episode, didn't we, about the importance of establishing that change of use first or the principle of what you can build on site first, because that's where probably 70 to 90% of the value derives from. And then everything around that will be what you add in the margins. So you, that's where you start. You start with that principle of development, that principle of change of use. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the the next episode we're going to be talking about planning gain, which again will be a a really interesting subject matter. And you know, a lot of people that we know have very, very solid and and progressive businesses out of that as well. So yeah, yeah. it's going to be a great one that one um, to listen to. But I, I, you know, with that in mind, um, and as a developer, let's say buying a, an opportunity that already has planning. Yeah. Um, possibly from a developer that has, or any party really, that has a sole purpose of, you know, securing a piece of land, getting that piece of paper on it, liberating the value and selling it on. Mm. The, you know, the the scheme that's been approved possibly is not the most efficient scheme yeah. from a, a physical development point of view. You know, maybe the uh, the roads are slightly wider than they they could be. Maybe there's some extra little pieces that have been added just because, you know, just to get the ticket. So there, there could some sometimes be, you know, when you're presented with an opportunity that 
uh, has planning permission, there could be opportunities of, you know, adding some more value, mm. still delivering the concept, but maybe just reining back some of the the wants and wishes of the planners, maybe. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's it's always good to look at it from both ends of the lens, but, you know, from a, and, and what the motives are. So from a, a planning game perspective, the objective is to get a piece of paper. Not at all cost, clearly, but yeah, of course, get yeah, a piece yeah. of paper on it and move it on. Yeah, uh, from a developer's point of view, it's all about efficiency. Yeah, buying an opportunity in, um, you know, maximizing, you know, the um, uh, the, the value through the development. But yeah, obviously, yeah. everything has a price tag. So you know, sometimes there's a bit of betterment there to just pop back in again and have another go at it and just see if you can maybe rein back some of the niceties. Yeah. could be in a development. So it, it never stops, David, does it? You, no, it doesn't. No. You know, yeah. even if you've got a, you know, full fat, all in, you know. Well, that's the danger, isn't it? it? It could never stop. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to know when to stop, haven't we, really? It's, yeah. Time is right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And, you know, there was a particular um, project that, w- that we undertook. Actually, you you very kindly helped us with that again in Waybrook House um, in Godalming mm-hmm. there. And, um, you know, planning permission was obtained for an extra floor um, for that particular building. Um, and in the end, we didn't progress that that part of it. And it was all it was down to, really. It came down to strategic approach to that site amongst everything else that maybe we yeah, had on sure. at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, do we and, – and also the uh, – I, th- I think the, the impact of stepping so many – steps back to then go forward to put this extra floor mm-hmm. on um was quite significant and would have you know really delayed the program our exit and all those sort of things and for one reason and there was more than one but for one reason we just decided it wasn't for us but you know again it was good to test mm. secured it and but just the decision was taken at the time that uh, yeah absolutely yeah, regardless, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah so that was good there's a there's a little thing called a development plan now I just wondered maybe we could kind of elaborate for the listeners, you know, what what, what is a development plan and maybe how how is it created? It's, count, it's basically the council's rule book for what they'd like to see in terms of development in their area or how they'll make planning decisions, key planning decisions. And it sets out what their strategies are and objectives. Um, and it comprises usually either uh, one or two documents called the, st- the core strategy um, or it might also include more detailed policies, such as the um, development management policies, used to be referred to as the unitary development plan or the develop- just a development plan. Um, and then behind that, there's a whole load of other documents, such as evidence documents about um, housing land supply, employment land supply, housing need. Um, you've got supplementary planning documents as well, which are guidance, such as on like residential guidance on how many um, how many meters you should be away from the nearest habitable room window of a neighbor or things like that in daylight and sunlight um and they take quite a long time to get adopted and actually quite a lot of local authorities have um planning policies which are out of date uh, and they might also um not be in sync with the current national planning policy framework either as well so you've got that local tier of of government um and of planning rules and planning guidance which is the go-to which is what you'll look at you tend to look at first 
And then you tend to look at other documents around that. Now, in London, we've got regional guidance as well, which has been published by the mayor, which is the London plan. Um, outside of London, they don't tend to do that so much either, even if they've got some sort of regional authority. It tends to be very much at the, at the district or the borough level, although the highways authority will usually be the county council, unless it's a, what we call the unitary authority, like Birmingham and Manchester, they have unitary authorities. And so the council that's deciding your planning application will also be the council that is in charge of highways um, or education or libraries. So education, libraries, highways, those are the main functions that are dealt with by county councils if it's not a unitary authority. Um, what's happening with planning at the moment is we've got a piece of legislation called the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill which is going through Parliament at the moment. It's in the House of Lords at the committee stage. Once the House of Lords have read it, it will go back to amendments, will go back to the House of Commons committee stage. And then they go backwards and forwards, sometimes between the committee stages and the Commons and the Lords. It's a stage called ping pong. It sort of goes backwards and forwards. And then that can you know, go on for any length of time. And then um, at some point, it then moves on to royal assent and gets adopted. Now, there are provisions in that bill, which is not expected to become law until probably next year, early next year sometime, which will start to give um, a higher level of status to national planning policy. So at the moment, the national planning policy framework is not part of the development plan. So just hold that thought for a moment because listeners may be going, so what? Now, what's the difference? What's the, what, why does it, what, why does it make any difference if it's part of the development plan or not? Come back to that. So that's not part of the development plan at the moment. Also, if you're looking at, um, development opportunities locally, there may also be, um, a neighborhood forum or a parish council or sort of a, a sub district level or sub borough level, which also has their own neighbourhood plan. And neighbourhood plans um, include or should include policies which are um, seek to encourage certain types of development as well as restrict it. So it's it's all neighbourhood plans shouldn't be the Vicky Pollard of planning. Computer says no, no, that sort of thing. Um, that it should include positive policies as well as negative policies. Now at the moment they are in the realm, such as, as along with the national planning policy of what's called other material considerations. So they're parked to the side of the local development plan. So our local development plan is the core strategy and development plan. Um, and then you've got other material considerations parked to the side, which is like supplementary policies, national planning policy, neighborhood plans, the dumping ground of everything that's not the core strategy and the development plan. This is why it's important to distinguish between the two, between the development plan and other material considerations. Because by law, any application that's made must be made in accordance with the policies of the development plan unless other material considerations indicate otherwise. Now, what the courts have determined is that the way that's phrased is it creates a presumption in favour of the policies and development plan. So, which is it's which is why it's always good if you're uh, 
looking at a development to propose something that you can say is in accordance with the policies and development plan. Otherwise, you're going to always be running uphill. And so with the levelling up and regeneration bill, what will happen is the national planning policy will then become, and also neighbourhood policies, will then become part of the development plan. So they will then have the same primacy in consideration as these other, as all the policies and development plan. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at a scheme and you're putting a scheme together, it always tended to be a little bit of a, fo- a bit of a footnote or a side interest point as to what the, the MPPF said and much less what the neighborhood plan said. I mean, it, we kind of get into a bit of a, a mindset sometimes. Oh my God. So it's like the busy bodies have got their own neighborhood plan together and they don't want this and they don't want that. Um, and we sort of dismiss it out of hand. So where it's only the neighborhood plan doesn't really have any great weight at the moment. That may be the case, but once these provisions become law, we have to take them seriously. I have to take them a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. Obviously the, these policies should be consistent with each other. You shouldn't have inconsistent policies between what the district says and what the parish says. And if they are inconsistent, the usual rule is you take the one that was adopted more recently. Mm-hmm. That's the usual rule. There are certain exceptions around it, but that's, that's what it is. So okay. it's really important to understand when you are making an application, what's my starting point? Because what is part of the development plan? Which, which has the greater weight? Which has the, the primacy? At mm-hmm. the moment, it's generally just the core strategy and development plan policies. I see. I see. In future, it'll be everything else. Now, there are other implications for this because there are a lot of local authorities in some parts of the country which don't have national space standards adopted into them. So, for instance, we have, we've been dealing with um, a scheme in Salford for a client, mm-hmm. and their development plan up until the beginning of this year did not have national space standards adopted into it. Um, we were able, therefore, to propose a scheme which was not fully in accordance with national space standards. Now, national space standards are part of the NPPF. And so at the moment, national space standards are not part of the development plan. But when the levelling up and regeneration bill comes into force, those provisions that relate to the NPPF coming into the development plan will automatically mean the national space standards become part of the development plan for all councils. Even if they haven't formally adopted them into the core strategy of the development plan, it becomes part of the development plan straight away. Really, really interesting that. So so just kind of boiling that down, do correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. But yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, in terms of the MPPF, so that's kind of the policy, that's the national yeah. policy. Yeah. Would it be right to say that the local authorities therefore look up to that policy and then interpret that policy in their their, their own view? Um, and then the the neighbourhood, or probably what will be eventually the neighbourhood plans, will then just kind of feed up into the development plan to to implement influence, if you like, at a local level that that development plan. Yeah, roughly speaking, I think that's about right. I mean, I think if I, you know, with most policy officers and there. First of all, they tend to focus on what their own local issues are and their own local circumstances are in any event. So they will need to have regard to the NPPF, but they're not required by law to be consistent with it. So, for instance, if you have a development plan that goes off to the um, 
uh, uh, to a local plan inquiry, you'll have an inspector who's appointed from Bristol there who will have a look at the um, the scheme and whether or not they'll have a look at the, not scheme, the development plan, and they'll have to consider whether or not it's sound. That's the legal test. Um, and in doing so, the inspector will have to draw in regard to the uh, NPPF. It may also, he, he or she may also have to draw in regard to regional policy that also, as you indicate, from a hierarchical point of view, sits above the district or borough level, but doesn't necessarily dictate the direction of district or borough policy. Because the district or borough may be able to say to the inspector, well, we appreciate that's what it says in the regional plan. Let's say, for instance, the London plan encourages affordable housing thresholds to only kick in at 10 or more units. But they, the di- district or borough may be able to say to an inspector, well, we appreciate that's a consideration, that's a starting point, but we have evidence here which indicates that we should, we can be, we can depart from that because our own set of circumstances in our borough is particularly unique. And this is sort of um, quite relevant to a lot of developers who throw their arms up in the air with a great deal of understandable frustration. And they said, well, we thought the national, the national limit, or the national threshold for affordable housing is uh, 10 or more units, but this borough has a small sites contribution. You know, we've got to pay um, 30% or provide 30% of, uh, of, of affordable housing units on sites below 10 units. We had this in Crawley, didn't we, with uh, um, Zurich House? Because right. uh, they had a small sites contribution. When we were applying to put another nine units on top of the 44 you'd already got through PD. Mm. So there's, the, the, we were doing a sort of um, an airspace development. Nine units were going there, and then we had to negotiate affordable housing contribution with the council. That's because they had a small sites contribution, which they were able to justify in their policy because the value of property locally was such that they felt that it was there was an affordability case to put to the plan inspector way back before we were involved in the in the scheme when their local plan was was settled. So you will get the council effective coming back to your point you'll get the council looking up and having regard to it but they will defend their local circumstances as much as they can because also there's a bit of political pressure yeah you know from ward councillors from committee members leaders executives of the council who want strategy to go in a particular direction they have their own local needs and circumstances yeah, very much so. So I, th- I think one of the as many takeaways here, but I think one of, one of the big ones is, you know, it's it comes down to the local authority and and their interpretation, their development plan, and it's not consistent. Just because you enjoyed a set of circumstances over here, yeah, no way, you know, constitute your enjoyment over here. It could be no, exactly. Yeah, so you yeah. you do need wherever wherever you are, wherever your you know your your search area is, and investment area or development area it's just really understanding those local authorities the framework the overall uh, overarching rules of the game may be the same yes. which is the law mm. but in terms of how the law is applied at a local level 
it is very much down to local democracy. Indeed. Yeah. So no, we, have a say, we, we have a saying in planning that planning without the law is just wishful thinking. Indeed, absolutely. And that's why so it's so give that gives that bite. Yeah. But within that, there's so much uh, room for discretion and difference. Absolutely. And, you know, interpretation and relationships come into that. Absolutely, yeah. Big yeah. start. Big start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We're, we're going we're gonna to turn the cannons now a little bit to the dark side. Right. For the yeah. Star Wars lovers amongst them. <laughs> um, so, so maybe we talk about the what-if scenario. So, yeah. you know, what if, not that anybody would, but let, let's say what if, you know, we uh, we just decided to get on with the development, no planning permission. You know, what what typically would happen? I suppose it depends on the because, norms. Because sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. That's yeah. what I hear. Yeah. Around, <laughs> uh, there, is a, there is an element of truth to that sometimes, yes. Yeah. Mm. But just just so we can get a balanced view of this, you know, I think yeah. you understand the the dark side of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, if you if if uh, you undertake development, you undertake a change of use. Um, obviously, much less to to a lesser extent, put up a building because it's a physical change, which is obviously much more obvious. But a change of use, uh, particularly to residential is uh, sometimes easier to get away with. And a lot of people do this with backland sites. They, For instance, they might have a shed at the back, and a lot of councils don't like um, small units, which are often under national space standards, might be overlooking neighbours or right on the boundary or eating up amenity space in the shed garden. And they don't like a separate self-contained dwelling in there, but sometimes people put them in at any event don't say anything. And then in four years' time, if it's there's been no complaints, they put in an application for a certificate of lawfulness and by law, then it has to stay. But that's the risk you take. Yeah, I mean, you might not you might not get uh, that far and somebody might complain and the council could enforce and slap an enforcement order on there and then all of a sudden you can't make an application for certificate of lawfulness and you have to go through the planning route. So, yeah, that's, that obviously there's going to be a risk to doing that. It gets very complicated as well sometimes if you, um, uh, you're in an area where you think you have permitted development rights and you do something unlawfully without planning permission uh, and uh, the council picks up on it, then by law, actually, you if, even if you undo the unauthorised works and you go back to where you were in the first place, by law, you might have lost your permitted development rights. So that's another dimension to the risk. Although, coming back to the answer to the previous question, um, there is quite a, an area of ignorance about this. Um, you might have some local authority officers who are just not aware of that particular um, full stop to the law. Uh, and then when they reverse the work, when the developer reverses the unauthorised works, they might still be prepared to accept uh, an application for permitted development. So it's worth asking them whether or not, you know, they would still accept a permitted development mm -hmm. application. If they don't flag it up, yeah. then try it anyway. Yeah. What are the options available? It's a, it's a dialogue, isn't it? You've yeah. kind of been uh, pushed uh, to do something and it's always worth exploring, I think, what the options are. Absolutely, from yeah. From authority's perspective. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you can certainly glean their viewpoint. If it's, yep. a, if it's a bit linear um, and not very varied, maybe you could, you know, you 
could speak to you, David, and you know, see if there are any other options possible. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. To expand that. But yeah. Yes, yes. And obviously, I suppose, <clears throat> you know, in terms of that enforcement and you know, there could be fines. Um, I suppose it's very extreme circumstances. There could also be uh, prosecutions, prosecutions as well. Yeah, it tends to happen a lot more in listed buildings. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what those fines could be, I mean, there is a margin, there is a scale uh, that's set out in law as to what they are. And the worst cases, they've, um, you have court cases where developers have done works where they will, already aware that those works would be unauthorized so they can't say that there's a level of ignorance to it they've clearly benefited and made a substantial amount of profit from it um and these are all aggravating factors um and uh the courts find some developers hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah. uh, for those sorts of works and then um if the court then orders those works to be undone by a certain time and those works are not undone by a certain time, then you could get prosecuted against so it. could be a continuing offence. Um, with listed buildings, there, there is notionally some sort of scale that if, let's say, for instance, you've got a listed building and you've done authorised works to four of the windows, um, unauthorised works internally to a couple of fireplaces, plan layouts, etc., um, then each of those separate matters is a separate offence in itself. And some courts impose a fine of maybe £2,000 per offence uh, or £5,000 per offence, something like that as well. Yeah. So it all tots up. It does. You've heard it here. It's, yeah. It can be a very costly affair, but um, yeah. yes, absolutely. And I, and I think the message is, you know, if if in doubt whether to seek planning or not, just get specialist advice. Seek advice. Yes, yeah. You know, understand the route to to getting that outcome, whatever it may be, and yeah. understanding the options, really. Yeah, I mean, there are certain circumstances where we have advised clients that they might be better off um, looking at doing something, looking at doing a development or a change of use, um, and seeing if they can get away with it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we... we We'll try to take a pragmatic view. A lot of planning consultants will try to take a pragmatic view um, and then maybe apply for a, a certificate of lawfulness in due course. But those, but it's up to us to say, well, these are the options. Hmm. This might be the best option or you've got this option. And then it's up to the client to decide what, you know, how, how they want to take those risks or what those risks are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And David, as part of this, this podcast that you're we're doing together, you've very kindly put a, a very special offer forward to all the listeners. Um, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, so the best way to get in touch with us if you want to know any more and to find out how we can help you on your schemes is to either find us through LinkedIn, on me personally, or DRK Planning. Um, we're also, we've also got a website as well, drkplanning.co.uk. Uh, or you can email me at david at drkplanning.co.uk. Uh, and um, uh, for anybody coming through this podcast, if you just let us know you're coming through this podcast, uh, then happy to uh, sit down with you for an hour, no charge, and uh, and go through a development opportunity with you as well. 
It's fantastic. Very, very, uh, very gracious, uh, David. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So <clears throat> moving on, um, we've, uh, we've got episode four coming up next. Um, it's going to be all about, as we mentioned earlier, the planning game business, which is uh, really interesting. And, you know, this, this value staircase, you know, people just make businesses out of planning gain and yeah. you know, do very, very well um, as well. So it's, it's understanding the nitty gritty, the ins and outs of that. You know, we touched on a few points during this podcast, but I think, I'm, you know, that's going to be a great subject to talk about on the next Absolutely. session. Yeah, 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 looking forward to that. Brilliant, David. Thank you very much. Well, you've been listening to the planning podcast, Nigel Green from the Echo Academy with David Kemp from DRK Planning, my, uh, my planning podcast partner. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you would like more inspiration, why not join our Facebook group, Property Developers and Investors, or visit our website, www.equaacademy.co.uk.